This is a One and All Media podcast. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Bringing people far from God near to God. We believe in one truth that will be delivered in love and compassion. Connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. Today. Today. Today with Jeff Fines. Hey there, welcome to Today with Jeff Fines. My name's Aaron, and I'm excited to be continuing in Nehemiah chapter 6 with a message about surrendering to God. This doesn't come naturally to us. Our human nature can harbor a resentment, even an anger towards God. But Nehemiah had to surrender to God's calling on his life. And it was then that God provided the things he needed in order to do that. Let's hear from Pastor Jeff now to see what we can learn from this passage for our lives today. We are in a crucial series, and I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Nehemiah 6. And I'm going to sell it, I'm going to segment this sermon into three categories. I seldom do this, and you know that. I want to separate this message into three segments, three parts. There's a warning in it, there's a weeping, and there's worship. Warning, weeping, worship. Okay, here's what I find convicting, okay? I find it convicting that here's what the Bible says about me. Now, I'm going to bring you in this week. So I beat myself up last week, so you got to join me this week. Here's what the Bible says about us. It says that our nature, the nature of the human heart, is not merely indifference to God. In other words, it's not just that often we don't even think about God. And most people don't really think about Him until they get in trouble and need help. But the Bible says that's the human heart. Not only are we indifferent, the Bible actually says that we we really don't like God. That intrinsic to the human heart is a contempt and a hatred, and an anger toward God that we're refusing to admit. That's harsh, isn't it? The Bible says, again, let me say it again, it's not that that we're just indifferent to God. It's that we actually don't like God. And intrinsic to the human heart is there's a contempt for God, a hatred for God, an anger toward God, and we're not willing to admit it. The Bible says in Romans 8, 7, the carnal mind is enmity toward God. That means we're just angry. We're mad. Now, when you were a teenager, did you ever slam the door and say, I hate you, mom? Some of you just yesterday. (laughs) Now, here's the mother that is your taxi driver that takes you everywhere, that puts clothes on your back, feeds you three meals a day, makes sure that you get to school, and then you get angry at your mom because what? She won't let you do something that you think you're entitled to do. And so you slam the door. How do I know this? Because I did it too. And you say, I hate you, mom. I hate you, mom. What you're really saying is you don't like the reality that somebody else is in charge of your life. That's what spoiled little brat teenagers do. 
and we've all been there. So if you're a teenager and you did that recently, I'm just trying to tell you the truth about yourself. Now, the Bible says that you and I have a tendency to live under the illusion of independence and self-sufficiency, that we don't really need God, when our real condition is an incredible dependency and a contingency. On the one hand, on the one hand, I know I'm the tenant, that God owns everything. On the other hand, I hate it. I hate it. On the one hand, we know that we owe the owner so much. On the other hand, I want to take credit for all my accomplishments and all my profits and all my gains while reserving the right to blame God for all the deficits. That's what the Bible says about us. That's human nature. Not only that, but Jesus says there's a deep conflict that arises in you out of all of this. You don't want the illusion of self-sufficiency and independence shattered by some messenger that comes along and reminds you that you're not in control of your life, that the world's not all about you. It's about God, and he owns everything in this world, including you. And so when somebody comes and tells you that, the Bible says you want to kill them. Jesus tells a great parable about this. I mean, it's not, it's not a hard one to interpret. Mark 12, he says, let me tell you about the kingdom. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. He rented the vineyard to some farmers, went away on a journey. Now remember, he built the vineyard. It's his wall. It's his wine press. So at harvest time, he sent one of the servants to the tenants, the renters, to collect some of the first fruit for the vineyard. Now, we're in, the, we're in the New Testament, not the Old. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. Verse 6, he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, what's the message Jesus is giving? Very simple. God owns it all. It's his vineyard. It's his world. It's his creation. And I hate that reality. I want it to be mine. And I detest anybody who comes and reminds me of this. And folks, this kind of attitude, it starts young, doesn't it? Max has got a stick for me he's going to bring out. Come on, Max. Uh, when I was in junior high school, and I think I've told this story before, but it's a good one. When I was in junior high school, T.A. Duggar Junior High, we had this game that we played. It was called cork ball. Cork ball is where you take a cork and you throw it and the batter tries to hit it with a broomstick. Now, I grew up in Tennessee. We didn't have a lot of, a lot of money to buy athletic equipment. So we had to get what we could get. The problem is we didn't have the broom handle, so I stole them out of the janitor broom closet. Yeah, your future pastor was a thief. So I stole them and I got some corks and we started to play. The teachers found out what we had done. All we wanted to do was have some cork ball during recess. I mean, if you can't play cork ball, what's used to going to school? And so we're playing cork ball. The teachers confiscate our broom handles and our corks and they store them up in the principal's office, Principal Pless. And you know, what happens when something like that happens, I mean, you, get, you just get sad. And I remember somebody in the group, after we realized we were standing around at recess and we had no cork ball and we had no cork bat, somebody made that statement and said this, you know what, somebody ought to go and take back what is ours. 
Now, it's not really ours. I stole it all. But somebody ought to go back and take back what's ours. And of course, me, I'm like a, a, a Plavlonian dog. That's all it takes to condition me to react. And I said, I'll do it. And then somebody said, well, I double dog dare you. And when they do that, you're in. Now, the problem is we had to find a way to get to the principal's office. And it's not easy to get to the principal's office if you don't have a key. But there's one sure way to get in the principal's office. You have to be injured. So I told my best friend to hit me in the nose. Hit me in the nose and I'll bleed and there'll be blood and then I'll get into the principal's office. And here was my plan. While the principal goes out to get the first aid kit and nursing help, I will go into the principal's closet and I will take all of the broom handles that he's confiscated and the corks and I will throw them out the third story of the principal window. You make sure you're down ready to catch them. And my plan worked perfectly. He hit me in the nose. I started to bleed. I took one for the team. I went inside. The principal class left the office just for a few minutes. I went over to the closet. It was open. I took all the broom handles and corks and I threw them outside. And we played cork ball because they gave up. Every time they took one, we had another. We took them all. And I guess they met and decided that I guess it's okay. They're not really hurting anything. Let the kids play cork ball. I want to tell you something. The name Jeff Vines is still legend to this day on the playground of T.A. Duggar Junior High School. Cork ballers, at least once a year, take a moment of silence <laughs> to remember the one who sacrificed so much, who said, we will play cork ball at recess. And I have become a legend, seriously. And I thought about this. What am I a legend about? being a liar a, and a deceit and a thief and a rule breaker. I'm famous. Nobody's going to tell us what to do. Now, here's the point of this. We have no intention of surrendering our lives to someone else and living by their legislation or precepts. That's who we are. The Bible says that's your nature. Sooner you admit that, the sooner you're going to realize what's going on here. Now, stay with me because the story of Nehemiah is going to get really good here. He's decided he's been called by God to build the city of God and the city of man. He's given up palace life, palace food, palace riches for a purpose greater than himself and his own needs and his own desires. He says, if I have to eat less and live less affluently, then I'll do it out of fear and respect for the call of God on my life and for the city of God that will far outweigh and outlast the city of man. So God gives him favor with the king so that he has all the resources to build the city. And let me stop here and say one more time, in this calling that we've received, it's a very simple principle. With the supernatural calling of God comes the supernatural resources of God to accomplish the task. It's like my friend Dudley Rutherford up at Shepherd of the Hill says, don't go out of here and pray that God would give us the resources to accomplish this incredible vision. He's already given it. It's in your pockets. The question is, are you going to surrender it? Don't pray that God would send the resources. My goodness. Do you have a roof over your head? You have clothes on your back? You got food? You got more than the rest of the world. You have more than enough. And to whom much is given, much is required. And the question before us is, will we trust God to continue to provide for us while we build the city of God? Will you give up control of your life and resources to the king that you say is on the throne of your life? Now, this story gets really interesting because the fact that Nehemiah is willing to live his life for the city of God ends up saving his life. If you know the story, Samballat, Tobiah, and company, they're like canker sores, man. They're like a mother-in-law, a bad mother-in-law. They just won't go away. So these guys complain and moan, 
And they say, we should not be doing this. This is not the best way. And then they say, Nehemiah, come down off the wall. We want to talk to you about this. But what they really want to do is get him off the wall so the work will stop and they can kill him. Nehemiah's response in Nehemiah 6, we pick up the story, verse 3. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work so I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? I love that. That's what we said a few weeks ago. We said that everybody in life has a decision to make. And this is the pyramid of your life and living. There's all kinds of time and space for you to do and for you to expand your energy in things that are not wrong, but they're less important. Whatever you put at the top of this triangle, what occupies this space is going to get the most of your time, the most of your talents, and you're going to sacrifice these things for that rather than this thing for those. So there's a lot of good things in your life that you do that are just least or less important. Nehemiah, he says, look, I don't want to come down and talk to you because right now I'm doing the thing that's most important to me. And it's a good thing because had he left the wall and the work of God, they would have been, he would have been killed. Now, he says, I can't come down for that. And let me just say again that if you live your life in this way, then God is going to get the best of you. But primarily, it may not only save your physical life, it's going to save the disintegration of your soul. I'm trying to get you to see that as long as you keep living your life the way you're living, you are going to be anxious and depressed because you cannot fool your soul. Your soul knows ultimately what you're living for. And if you go out there and you keep pursuing the same thing everybody else is pursuing, you're going to get the same thing everybody else is getting. Depression, anxiety, nervousness, and ultimately Sadness and death, the disintegration of your soul. You cannot fill an eternal void by temporary means. And so it happens in verse 5. They finished the wall on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. And it happened when our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us saw these things that they were very disheartened. Now, why were they disheartened? I mean, they, they just achieved a major work. The city of God and the city of man and the people are disheartened. Now, here's the, where's the, remember I told you the sermon, warning, weeping, worship. Here's the warning. Do you know why they're disheartened? Suddenly it dawned on them that this was the work of God. It says that, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. They're disheartened because they realize suddenly that in their attempt of self-aggrandizement and self-worship, and the whole world was about them, they missed out on partnering with God to do something that really matters. They realized God wanted to do something great, but they stood on the sidelines and instead of getting involved, they sniped from the bushes. That's what you do. It kind of makes you feel better about yourself when you downplay what other people are doing by sacrificing and surrendering their lives to a purpose greater than themselves. And so where are you in that? Again, it's a matter of your heart. Where's your passion? What do you really want to do with your life? And then the narrative just gets greater. And remember what we said, every Old Testament narrative points to a greater narrative. So what does this narrative where the people are disheartened because they realize they've missed God, what does this point to? Something Jesus said in Luke 13. He said, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you began to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I don't know where you come from. 
Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. Dude, Jesus, we hung out with you. We were your peeps. Come on, you know us. And he says, no, I tell you, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, these are the fathers of the movement here and all the prophets, the proclaimers of the movement in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. What's the bottom line here? Do you, know, do you realize what he's saying? He's giving you a New Testament picture of what happened in Nehemiah's day. There's gonna be a lot of people who say, man, I was in proximity of the kingdom, but I never surrendered into it. This is what he's saying. What? You who never surrendered your life to the work of ministry, you're just part of the outward crowd, you're on the fringe, and the Bible says what Jesus is going to say is, I don't even, who are you? You see, there's a difference between being in proximity and really surrendering your life. And Jesus says, there's going to be many people on that day who are weeping and having the gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth, is, means the, it means the teeth of regret. You're going to say, man, why didn't I listen? I was so close. And I heard the pastor say this, and I heard people proclaim this, but I never really did it. In the meantime, everybody else is celebrating because the city of God has been built in the city of man. Do you remember in Revelation 21? It reminds me of the same story of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. He says, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And in verse 8, look what he says. But as for the cowardly and faithless, the cowardly and faithless are listed with murderers and the sexually immoral and the sorcerers. Why? Because following Jesus is not for cowards. When I go around and speak at universities, one of the first things I hear from students, they'll say, but Pastor Jeff, Christianity is for the weak intellectual the weak-willed person who needs a crutch to make it through life. And I'm saying, dude, do you know anything about what Jesus taught? I got to turn the other cheek. I got to pray for people who persecute me. I got to surrender my life. And it's those things right now that's preventing me from slapping you. <laughs> I got to behave. Following Christ is not for cowards. It's not for the faithless. You surrender your life. You got to have faith that Christ is going to provide for you. Nehemiah 7 tells us that they celebrated. And man, did they celebrate. It says in Nehemiah 7, 66, although the whole assembly was 42,360, their horses were 736. I don't know why it's important that I know that. Their mules, 245. Their camels, 435. And their donkeys, 6,720. I'm not sure why I need to know all that. I guess even the animals were praising God. I don't know. But I do know this. There's a warning Here's the warning. Don't be a Tobiah and a Sanballat. Don't stand by in proximity and think you're in. Don't stand by in proximity and think that means you're in. Two, now there's a weeping. In Nehemiah chapter eight, here we go, pick it up in verse one. Now all the people gathered together as one man. See, the body of Christ is one. They're one. They're in. When you're in, man, you're one. You're a machine. You're, you're a force ordained and anointed by the Holy Spirit of God. They're in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women, and all could hear. Then he read from it in the open square from morning until midday, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. My goodness. After it had been built, Nehemiah brings the law of God. He reads it somewhere probably around six to eight hours. 
and they stand the whole time and they listen. My goodness, you can't even sit for 40 minutes without going to the bathroom while I'm preaching. <laughs> Nehemiah 8, they stand, they listen. And the Bible says they bless the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, amen, amen, while lifting up their hands. They bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now, here's what's interesting. Now, stay with me here. There's a turn about to happen because they're joyful. Why wouldn't they be joyful? They built the city of God and the city of man. They prepared the way for the Messiah that will come hundreds on hundreds of years. But then suddenly, the Bible says they began to cry. For all the people wept, verse 9. Then in verse 10, he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, why would they be in sorrow? Do you realize what's happening here? Suddenly it dawned on them that their lives are in the predicament that they're in because they have disobeyed God for most of their lives, refusing to surrender to him. So they go from joyous to sadness. Man, why did we not do this sooner? And in verse 7, they say, God, they start confessing, God, you're the Lord God who chose Abram, brought him out of the Ur of Chaldeans, gave him a name, Abraham. You saw the affliction of our forefathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry by the Red Sea. You saw their affliction. Verse 10, you showed signs and wonders about, against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of the land. They're saying, God, you gave our forefathers. It's because when you read the law for seven hours, you're going to read all the stories in the Torah, the Old Testament. And suddenly it dawned on them, men, you know what? We deserve what we've gotten. No wonder we've been exiled. No wonder we've been impoverished. No wonder God has not been directing resources toward us. They continue all through chapter 8 and 9. You parted the waters of the Red Sea so that your people could walk across on dry land and you saved them from their enemies. And they keep going. You refused to leave them alone and instead you guided them by day and night by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. You spoke to them from Mount Sinai and you gave them precepts of love from heaven. And then he says in verse 15, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger. You brought them water out of a rock for their thirst and you told them to go and possess the land which you had sworn to give them. God had kept all his promises, all his provisions, all his precepts. And then the people say to God, but we know what our fathers did. They acted proudly, verse 16. They hardened their necks. They did not seek or heed your commandments. They refused to obey. And they were not mindful of your wonders. So they disobeyed you. They didn't honor the temple. They didn't worship and praise your name. They did not obey your law. They become hard-hearted. And they would not surrender their lives to God. And they acted proudly and did not heed your commands. He keeps going, but sinned against your judgment, which if a man does, he shall live by them. What does that mean? It means that if you insist on living your life your own way, God will allow you to suffer the ramifications of your decisions. He's not going to come in and rescue you when you're violating the law of God every day of your life. That's not the way God works. Because then you'd never learn the lesson. Again, I wish I could just take my heart out and you could see it and hear what I'm trying to say. If you keep living like everybody's been living, this eternal void in you will never be filled by something that is temporary and your soul will continue to disintegrate. Thank God the people of Nehemiah's day woke up because the real people of God always do, don't they? 
You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. Paul said in Colossians, since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Stop giving yourself to things that pull you away from God. You may not be perfect, you're gonna make mistakes, but what's in here? What's in here? You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.